Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. The music on today's show is a song called Mars, the God of War by The Beths from their 2020 album, Jump Rope Gazers. To hear the full song and all the other music from my episodes, check out the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. And as August approaches, if you're getting ready to go to war against your fantasy football opponents, 444.com can support you with our arsenal of rankings, articles, and tools. If you get subscribed before July 31st, you'll get our early bird pricing, plus a $35 voucher to use at the Fantasy Football Players Championship, aka the FFPC. So head over to 444.com, click that red subscribe button up in the top right corner, and take advantage of the special deal while it lasts. We're going to talk top-tier quarterbacks and fantasy X-Factors on today's show. And to help me out, I've got not one, but two co-hosts. The first is Alex Gelhar joining me once again from 444.com. What's up, Alex? How's it going? Not too much. Excited to be here for this very fresh and original podcast. Yeah, this is take two uh, for a little little peek behind the curtain. We tried to do this yesterday. My computer ate the episode, so we're back again. Another person back again with me, our bonus co-host for the week, Pat Fitzmorris from the Fitz on Fantasy podcast and thefootballgirl.com. Pat, you had the second most af- accurate draft rankings according to Fantasy Pros among their 150-plus analysts last season, so it's pretty fitting to get you on the Most Accurate podcast. So uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, well, I'm glad the Most Accurate podcast is willing to uh, slum it with the second most accurate guy, but uh, that was kind of a, a blind squirrel finding the acorn uh, instance with me last year. Uh, but yeah, thanks for having me on, Greg, and, and boy, with Alex and I, two native cheeseheads the only way this podcast could get more wisconsin centric is if we recorded it in the bar room of a supper club while drinking brandy old fashions i mean that sounds good to me i'm a little hesitant to join you because you were one of the three rankers to beat me in kicker accuracy last season so i kind of hate you for that but you know I, i can't help but respect you uh, but unfortunately, no kicker talk on this show, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe you guys will blindside me at some point. Uh, we're going to start off with a couple news items on the show. First is Kelvin Harmon tearing his ACL. This happened a little while ago. And I just want to discuss the Washington offense and their fantasy outlook with you guys, because this is one of the more unknowable situations. Uh, Pat, what's your take on Washington and their fantasy players this year? Boy, it seemed like this was already a pretty polarized uh tree as far as passing game usage with you know terry mclaurin looking great like a candidate to you know be top 10 in targets this year and uh steven sims who really came on late in the year looks like uh you know he's going to be the slot guy now that they figure out trey quinn can't really play now those two i guess more than ever with Harmon out of the picture i don't know what they're going to get in uh antonio gandy golden's rookie season he's kind of an intriguing physical prospect but um you know i know there's some questions about whether he can beat press coverage so that's kind of a hard thing for guys to figure out right off the bat in the nfl so uh you know i'm definitely an interested investor in mclaurin and sims especially with really a a mishmash at tight end you know jeremy sprinkle and thaddeus moss and you know (laughs) an interesting assortment there and you know, maybe Antonio Gibson gets worked into the mix, uh, splitting out a little more. He's intriguing, but really it's it's McLaurin and Sims. It, it kind of increases their value to me. Alex, how are you tackling this team? Uh, aside from McLaurin, I'm really not looking to anybody else unless I'm in a desperate situation in a, in a zero RB lineup. I think oftentimes when these sorts of injuries happen, we in the fantasy community try to look and think of like, who's this going to benefit the most? But this might just be a case where, it doesn't really benefit anybody that, you know, massively. Washington was one of the teams that uh, was really run heavy last year. 
And uh, now that that's going to switch with Scott Turner and Ron Rivera there, um, I'm really not sure I want to buy in on Steve Sims, maybe other than a late flyer. I This team is just so uh, talent poor now at the wide receiver position. I'm really would rather invest in other late round options I can get that are attached to better offenses and better quarterbacks. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Steven Sims is getting the requisite hype to make us interested in him at his cost because he is relatively affordable in drafts. But we could have said the same thing about Marquez Valdez-Scantling from your guys' Packers team last year, and we all saw how that worked out. I think the overall point Alex makes about this making for a small value jump for some of these players, but not a big enough one to matter, is kind of the way I look at it. I think Sims is the one who becomes the most interesting. Antonio Gibson maybe as well. Like they become safer picks just because their touches are a little more locked in. But I am still going to be targeting those guys pretty tentatively. Uh, Let's move on to Seattle. There have been some rumors that these guys are going to add a receiver to their pretty tight target distribution there. Before he announced yesterday that he was, quote unquote, done with the NFL, there were rumors, rumors of Antonio Brown signing with the Seahawks. Josh Gordon has also been linked to them. And let's be clear, just because AB tweeted once again that he was retiring, that doesn't mean it's true. This could be part of his plan to gain some leverage to sign with a specific team, whether that's the Seahawks or not. Either way, with the possibility of another potential impact receiver being added to the mix here for Seattle, how are you two starting to reevaluate the other players in that offense, if at all? I'm not that concerned about it as far as you know potential investments in Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf. Um, you know, even if Josh Gordon came in, I, people have been chasing the ghost of 2013 for so long with him. And, and, you know, at this point, I can't picture him as anything more than sort of a role player there. And uh, kind of curious why they'd be pursuing anyone anyway, since now they've got, you know, a litany of tight ends with Olsen and, and Hollister and Disley. And they've got Philip Dorsett, who they brought in, David Moore's least roster worthy. So I don't know. I'm, I'm still... Very interested in Metcalf. I, I think some people have the, the Lockett Metcalf separation in their rankings as being pretty minimal, but I, you know, I'm definitely more interested in Metcalf just because I think that in the, the top range of his end of outcomes is, you know, maybe a Randy Moss type season. I mean, he's just such a physical freak and uh, was really starting to dominate last, late last season, despite really only having a couple of routes in his arsenal. I think the more he gets involved in the offense and the more he and Russell Wilson get comfortable working together. I mean, I think just the sky is the limit for this guy. I'm pretty much in the same boat. I'm not going to adjust rankings or fret over anything until we see pen on paper. Uh, And also, you know, Josh Gordon was there for a brief spell last year and didn't make a colossal impact. So I'd really got to wait and see before I make, you know, wring my hands over anything. Otherwise, I agree with Pat, though. I, I'm one of those people that doesn't have the Tyler Lockett-DK Metcalf split being too large. But I also think that the ceiling for DK, especially after seeing what he did late last season, in particular, you know, the playoffs and some of the games leading up to it, he definitely looks like he has that type of ceiling, given how big and fast and strong he is, that once he gets the ball in his hands, he can he can make extra things happen in addition to the deep shots they'll take with him anyways. Yeah, I think the right answer with this receiver group is that we want both of them. We want Lockett and Metcalf because they're so focused, right? And because Russell Wilson's their quarterback. If they're going to be seeing the bulk of the targets week to week and that's their QB, that can only be good things for fantasy. So I'm interested in both Lockett and Metcalf. I do have Lockett ahead of Metcalf still in my rankings, but it's close. And I would be happy if I walked away with either one from any of my drafts. 
One thing that it might do, though, if they add another receiver there is create a little extra upside for Russell Wilson, right? But he was already my quarterback three, so I don't think there's a whole lot of room for him to move up. But that kind of raises a good question, right? Let's say Antonio Brown or Josh Gordon does sign there in Seattle. Does that push Wilson closer to Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, up at the top of the quarterback rankings for you guys? Um, Alex, why don't you go first on this one? It's not going to push him past those guys for me. I think Russ is appropriately valued, given the fact that his offense for years still insists on running the football more and more than is necessary when they have you know, a future Hall of Famer under center. Russ still finishes as a top five fantasy quarterback almost annually, just thanks to how you know damn good he is. But the addition of another receiver isn't going to change my mind until they admit that they're going to change their offensive philosophy. Pat? I think I've already got him ranked pretty respectfully, and I don't think I would be moving him onto that uh, Mahomes-Jackson tier. But uh, it is exciting, maybe more so than the prospect of any other additions to the wide receiver core, is that you know the, the Seattle defense looks to be um, you know not quite the fearsome beast that it has been in the past. There's no more Legion of Boom in the secondary. Uh, you know maybe the pass rush isn't quite as fierce as it used to be. So. If they get into some more negative game scripts and, uh, you know, the, the saying in Seattle is let Russ cook because they've been so ridiculously run heavy uh, over the past, geez, really since 2011, I think, when Daryl Bevel started as their offensive coordinator. They have been uh, exceedingly run heavy. And if their defense does not allow them to be this year, I mean, we could see Russell Wilson possibly make a move up to that top QB tier. Yeah, and that's the sort of bump that I'm envisioning for him this year versus last year. And we've already seen Russell Wilson be a, a top five guy before, so we know he can do it. I, I am expecting that defense to regress a little bit more. The division that they're in should be prone to a lot of shootouts because there are a lot of good offenses there. And that, that's why he's my QB3. But I'm with you guys. If they add Josh Gordon, I don't think I would put him ahead of Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes. If they added Antonio Brown and Antonio Brown you know, wasn't going to miss all that many games, maybe just suspended for two to four games, I would be tempted, or maybe not tempted to draft him ahead of those guys, but more happy to draft him after those other two go. But let's talk about those top two, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. It's splitting hairs when we're talking about these two excellent talents at the quarterback position, but if you have to pick one, who do you have? I mean, like you said, it's splitting hairs, um, but I'm I'm feeling uh, Mahomes here by, by a hair over uh, Lamar Jackson, simply because uh, I really don't have any advanced metrics or deep stats to back this up because both of them are, are truly elite talents. But I'm getting uh, 2011 Packer vibes from the Chiefs right now where they were really close to winning the Super Bowl and then they won it. And now this next year, they're coming back fully loaded. They added more talent in the draft. They've got all the pieces back. And I just think, you know, pending a COVID disaster, some sort of injury, Mahomes is, is set up in a great place to try and push for 50 passing touchdowns again. Yeah, I'm with you. I have Mahomes just by a hair. I think like everyone else, I'm assuming some amount of passing efficiency regression for Lamar Jackson. Plus, I think there's a decent chance that the Baltimore defense and their running game are good slash great enough to where Jackson's overall fantasy volume dips. With that said, I can definitely envision certain scoring setups where I would prefer Lamar Jackson specifically in leagues where passing touchdowns are only worth four points and interceptions are worth zero. I think that confluence of scoring settings definitely pushes Jackson ahead of Mahomes in my mind because his rushing stats become that much more valuable. But where are you at on these two, Pat? Uh, are you a Lamar Jackson guy or Patrick Mahomes guy? 
So when I started with my first pass at uh, off-season rankings way back in like late January, early February, it was uh, Mahomes just because I thought the business model is a little more sustainable for what Mahomes does, right? More the traditional quarterback. And, uh, you know, we've seen in the past running backs or running quarterbacks sort of have fleeting value. Uh, Mike Vick had a couple of, you know, top seasons and a lot of seasons where he was really, uh, you know, not quite as effective as a running quarterback. And now do I even have to bring up the one year of Cordell Stewart greatness followed by a complete disappearance? (laughs) Uh, Certainly Lamar Jackson is no Cordell Stewart. Um, And then I had Rich Rebar on my podcast and he made the interesting point that Lamar Jackson had this freakish year last year with things pretty much going exactly according to the Ravens blueprint. Like they outscored opponents by an average of, I think over two touchdowns a game, Um, you know, favorable game scripts all year, which of course was largely because Lamar Jackson was so effective, but like negative game scripts can be a quarterback's best friend. They didn't really have any and Lamar kicked ass anyway. Then they get into the playoffs and things go sideways for them against the Titans and in that game you know Lamar winds up throwing for 360 some yards and rushing for like 130 some yards and even though he only had I believe one touchdown pass and no touchdown runs he put up like 32 and a half fantasy points if he gets into more of those games where things don't go according to plan for the Ravens and he has to play with his hair on fire I mean, he could put up more of these scores where your opponent is not going to beat you no matter what, unless he gets Yahtzee on the first roll, like where Lamar just puts up such a crazy total. You're pretty much winning that week. So that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. and I, I moved Lamar back ahead. I don't feel super strongly about that, but, you know, there is a case to be made that he might even be able to go a little bit higher than he went last year as far as where to set the bar for Lamar's value and fantasy. Yeah, like we said, it's splitting hairs. And, and now that we've split those hairs, let's split the hairs in the second tier of quarterbacks. And I'm going to define that as some combination of Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray, Deshaun Watson, and Russell Wilson. Uh, when we were tried to record yesterday, I had them ranked Wilson, Prescott, Murray, and Watson. Uh, I'll admit now, ahead of time, that you guys did sway me on one of those rankings. So I'll wait till after you guys give your takes to tell you what I've done to change those rankings. But Alex, who's your favorite from this group? Who do you have number three? And I guess just how do you rank this group of four QBs in general? Well, given that, I think my pitch and and Pat's was part of the reason why you switched your rankings. It's uh, Deshaun Watson for me. I had him in one of our 4 for 4 player debates, which you guys can find on the 4 for 4 website, or I believe I've tweeted it out as well. The question was Deshaun Watson or Dak Prescott, and I picked Deshaun because he has been a consistent top five quarterback, especially in points per game. We kind of have to discount his first year when he suffered that knee injury, uh, averaging over 20 fantasy points per game each of his years in the league. And he's done all this without spectacular numbers, which is the remarkable thing. The team has never had to truly lead on him. He's never had more than 26 touchdowns in a season. His season high in passing yards is only around like 4,300. So he's the guy that has been just putting up good numbers. And the reason I like him at number three is this could be the year where he has to take those numbers to the next level. Like if you think about how good he's been and you add another five to ten touchdowns onto his total. So if he hits four thirty three touchdowns and if he throws for forty five or forty six hundred yards and keeps his rushing totals, all of a sudden Deshaun's going to be right in the mix, if not above Mahomes and uh, Jackson. So that's why I really love him as the number three this year. 
So I agree with Alex in having uh, Deshaun number three, and it turns out we're contrarians to some extent on that because I've noticed that both in uh, ADP and in the Fantasy Pros expert consensus, Dak is number three and Watson is number six. So Dak at the top of that tier, Watson at the bottom. Um, I've got a Watson, Wilson, Prescott, and then Kyler sixth. What Alex said, yes, I mean, average fantasy points for their careers. Watson is at 21.6, Wilson at 19.3, Dak at 18.4, and Murray in his one year at 17.8. So that's more than a three-point gap between Watson and Prescott. I know that you know Watson lost DeAndre Hopkins, which a lot of people are sort of dinging him for, I think. Although I know Mike Clay tweeted something in the spring about how surprisingly Watson has better efficiency numbers throwing to other wide receivers than he did throwing to nuke uh, during Hopkins time in Houston. So that was kind of interesting. And it's not like he doesn't have any talent at receiver. Watson now has Will Fuller, Brandon cooks comes in uh, Randall Cobb, Kenny stills. And I know Fuller has this fraught injury history Cooks has had some concussion issues, but it's a good group if they can stay intact. He's got two pretty good pass-catching running backs. The thing about Dak, you know, he he took this quantum statistical leap last year with his career-high 4,902 yards, 30 TD passes, and, you know, you add C.D. Lamb to that group that already included Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup. It's easy to see why people are getting excited. Um, You know, as a Packer fan, I do remember how Dak – just totally went off in garbage time against the Packers after the Packers were blowing them out last year. I think Dak had like 300 second half yards, but there were actually a couple other games like that for the Cowboys too. So I kind of dug into the, uh, the, the play by play for a few of these games. And I found that um, in the blowout losses to the Packers, Bills and Bears, Dak threw for 738 yards and four touchdowns in those three games in the second half after the Cowboys had fallen behind by more than two touchdowns. That period accounted for 66 minutes and 28 seconds of game clock, just a little over a game's worth, and he had 700-plus yards and four TDs. That's 15.1% of his passing yardage for the year and 13.3% of his TD passes. So he ate heartily in garbage time, and that kind of skewed the overall numbers a little bit. So... I get the excitement. I mean, he's a great quarterback, or at least a very good one. And, you know, I have no problem with him being on this tier. I've got him at number five. Uh, I just can't put him ahead of Watson or or Russ, who I just think are better quarterbacks. Yeah, so I still have Wilson at three. I alluded to that. But the, the Prescott stuff that you just mentioned, and you mentioned that yesterday when we did this the first time, that was what scared me off of him a little bit. And so I thought a little bit more about Dak Prescott when I was reviewing my rankings today. And I did push him behind Murray. And I effectively have him in a tie with Watson as like the QB4, QB5. Like call them both QB4.5. I don't really care which one of those guys I get. If I have the choice, um, I'd probably take Prescott. I still do care about the weapons. And that's part of why I was willing to move Murray up 
Um, and why I'm still willing to put Prescott ahead of Watson is I think the Cowboys adding CeeDee Lamb, Watson losing, DeAndre Hopkins, this has to matter. Like that stat you mentioned about Watson being more efficient targeting other receivers than DeAndre Hopkins is probably rooted at least in some small amount in the fact that Hopkins draws so much defensive attention, right? So I, I'm not going to totally dismiss the loss of Hopkins. That does matter to me. Um, but again, these guys are all really close. I think the lesson here is just don't be the first one to take one of these guys. Try to be the third or fourth person to draft from this tier, right? Yeah, I think these guys are grouped pretty close. This is a clear tier. And um, generally, I don't shop on this tier anyway. But if one of these four falls a little bit, and maybe it will be Watson this year, you know, then I might be interested if I can get a little bit of value. Yeah, I think that this is a great tier. These guys all have realistically extremely high ceilings and pretty reliable floors. Um, you can talk yourself into any of them being there. So uh, it's just kind of a matter of preference. And for Pat and me, it's uh, Deshaun leading the way out of that. So what are you doing if you just miss on all these guys and you're forced to pick a QB at the top of what we're going to call tier three? Like who is the QB seven for you guys after those top six are gone? Uh, well, for me, it's Josh Allen. And uh, he's he's right after that top that top six there. Uh, you look at what he was able to do last year. It's It's not the prettiest sometimes in terms of his accuracy and things. But the guy is just a fantasy monster with his legs and his arms so being able to get him some points. Uh, he racked up yards. He scored touchdowns on the ground. And the addition of Stefan Diggs could really help things out there as well because saw a little bit of progression last year when they gave him some more weapons with John Brown and Cole Beasley. Uh, and I think that offense was really starting to cook. And uh, Josh Allen is just a fantastic fantasy outlet. And I think he's one of those guys where you can tell yourself the story where if Buffalo's defense regresses a little bit too or – Maybe Allen takes a little bit of a step as a as a passer with more weapons around him where he could really vault himself towards the top of the quarterback standings as well. I agree with Alex here. I mean, it's not always uh, pretty, and the, the technique doesn't always uh, have a lot of appeal with Allen. He's more of a, a Jackson Pollock type of quarterback, I think. But, um, you know, we have seen him establish this interesting formula with his willingness uh he is you know ready willing and able to get out of the pocket and run for yardage you know over 1100 rushing yards and 17 td runs in his first two years and granted like the efficiency stats the completion percentage the yards per attempt are uh, not that pleasing i think he's finished out of the top 20 in both of those categories but i mean who says he can't improve as a passer with age you know, he, he's never going to be a guy who wins, uh, who leads the league in completion percentage. But I, I think maybe they can spruce up the mechanics a little bit. Getting Stefan Diggs is going to help. Maybe there are gains to be made there while he maintains some of the rushing yardage. And, uh, you know, it's possible that he could one of these years sneak into that top tier. I've talked about this on the show, but I'm not a Josh Allen guy. And a lot of it has to do with that inaccuracy, the fact that he's a little bit more up and down with the turnovers and the bad games. And part of my viewpoint here is colored by the fact that I usually play two quarterbackers, super flex leagues. And in that type of format, I want a quarterback I draft early to be in my lineup every week. I don't want to have to worry about those big dud games. And that's generally why I'm not a big Josh Allen fan. And I think that after a while in the NFL and, and based upon your college production, you kind of are who you are. He's never been accurate. I acknowledge that, yes, some players improve over time, but I don't see Josh Allen making big enough strides in the accuracy department to justify him being, you know, a top quarterback along the lines of, you know, the, the four guys we just talked about. Like, I don't think he's that close. 
Um, with that said, the ceiling is definitely there. Those up and down weeks can really work in a best ball format. But if I'm drafting season long and I'm drafting two quarterback and I want somebody I can plug in every week, I don't want somebody playing in the NFC East or the AFC East, excuse me, most likely. All the defenses in that division are pretty good. And Josh Allen's erratic play generally just scares me off. So when I look for my QB7, I'm looking for that more stable, consistent player. And I have Carson Wentz just barely ahead of Matt Ryan. And to be fair to Ryan, he might actually be the safer option especially considering the division that he plays in, right? There could be a lot of shootouts there in the NFC South. But I like Wentz because he adds rushing production, and I just think it makes sense to buy a bounce back on him after the near-weaponless season that he just had. Like, there's something to be said about Wentz getting Deshaun Jackson back, adding Jalen Ragor, and generally just having a more cohesive team here. Miles Sanders is, is another year in the league. Hopefully he'll be better too. Like, I just see that Philly offense as one that's being a little unheralded, but I see the upside, and I like that Wentz offers that potential for passing and rushing production, whereas with Josh Allen, I only really see the rushing appeal every game, and I the passing, I think, is going to come and go. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, not much question, I think. Wentz is just a, a better NFL quarterback. You know, it's just he, he can't or, or doesn't. Uh, operate in the same way with that rushing yardage. I mean, it's just pure Konami code with uh, Allen's value. But the one stat that I just uh, find completely mind-boggling from 2019 is that Wentz was able to throw for 4,000 yards without having a single wide receiver get 500 receiving yards. I mean, that's just stunning. And, and now, as you said, Greg, they just bring in all this speed at running back. Well, getting Deshaun uh, Jackson back, Rager, um then in, on day three, they add uh, Quez Watkins and John Hightower, two just pure speed guys. Um, and then I had kind of forgotten about it till the other day where I looked at their depth chart and uh, realized that they had signed Marquise Goodwin of the 49ers. So there's just all this speed now on the outside, in addition to the two terrific pass catching tight ends and Miles Sanders, who was, you know, kind of a revelation in the passing game last year. So, yeah, I can I can definitely see your point with. Wentz having uh, you know some very intriguing upside this year. Pat, who's a dark horse bet for you to maybe rise up out of nowhere and finish top six ahead of just maybe one of those top tier quarterbacks? Is there uh, a later dart throw that you think has that upside? Yeah, so I'm not saying this guy will uh, do this, but as kind of a dark horse possibility, I sort of I hesitate to say like because so many people do not like this guy, but Jared Goff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there's, uh, you know, the the stain of playing poorly in a Super Bowl might uh, hang on him for a while. But I still believe in the Sean McVay offense. There was a period midseason where Goff really kind of hit the skids last year and, and slumped, ran into some bad matchups and, you know, was throwing up some pretty lousy fantasy point totals. But he really got it together and was bringing together 300 yard games and, and throwing touchdown passes again in December pretty good group of pass catchers with Robert Woods and Cooper Cup and the two tight ends. And, uh, you know, Cam Akers is a pretty nifty pass catcher. You know, last year, the, the Rams threw to their running backs like a shockingly low percentage of, of the time. I think like in the last 10 years, running backs accounted for one of the lowest percentages of, of team targets of any NFL team in the last 10 years. You know, and I think that's going to bounce back a little bit and we're going to see more easy completions for Goff, which which might help pad those garbage totals a little bit so i i think there's 
some upside there and people have gotten a little bit bored with him and, and just don't think he's, you know, a high quality starting quarterback. I get it, but I do think he's in a position where he could be of value this year. Alex, what do you think about golf? And I guess after that, let us know who your dark horse is. I, I like the golf call and uh, reminds me of somebody you and I talked about last week on the podcast, Jimmy Garoppolo as well, and maybe even like uh, Matthew Stafford. Some of these guys that you look at in that range that have weapons around them or are in good offenses and maybe had some some bad regression hit uh, at different points in the year before, like with Goff's touchdown rate being so surprisingly low and, as Pat mentioned, not throwing to running backs. Uh, certainly a bunch of guys that if I'm waiting on quarterbacks, you know, if I miss out on a, on a faller from that earlier tier we were talking about, uh, I'll look to some of those guys. And another guy that, uh, as far as dark horses go, I haven't really drafted him a bunch yet, but I can see the situation for him climbing up highly is Daniel Jones with the Giants. Uh, he had some issues last year with uh, with fumbles and interceptions, so be cognizant of your scoring system before you draft a guy like Daniel Jones. If they penalize you a lot for turnovers, he might not be the pick. But that Giants defense is not a very good one, and Jones has loads of talent around him. We saw Darius Slayton pop off a few times last season. Golden Tate should be healthier. Sterling Shepard should be healthier. And then, of course, Evan Ingram and Saquon Barkley. You could see a situation where Jones is, is forced to take to the air a lot and maybe puts up like a, uh, what was it, Blake Bortles 2014 season where he ends up finishing as a top five fantasy quarterback with some somewhat ugly stats on a, on a team without many wins. Yeah, I love the Jones call, and relative to cost, I would much rather draft him for all the reasons you just said than go after someone like Josh Allen. Like, Josh Allen is being drafted at his ceiling if he's going to QB7. Daniel Jones is much cheaper than that, or maybe not much cheaper, that he's he's cheaper enough to where I feel like he does have more room to, to build on that cost you have to pay to get him. So I, I like that call a lot. I like the weapons he has, and their defense is going to be bad, so they're going to be throwing a lot. My dark horse, and maybe this is too easy of a call to make because we've seen him be a top five guy before, but it's Ben Roethlisberger. He's just not being drafted that highly anymore, and I get it. There's injury risk, but in case anyone forgot, Big Ben ranked second among quarterbacks in points per game just two years ago behind only Patrick Mahomes. And while that was with Antonio Brown, it's not like Brown's departure left the Steelers completely bereft of receiving talent, right? They still have Juju Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, and James Washington both performed well in flashes last season, despite an atrocious quarterback situation. Pittsburgh added Eric Ebron to complement Vance McDonald at tight end, and they still have multiple viable receiving threats out of the backfield. If you add it all up, even if Roethlisberger's volume sinks back towards the middle of the pack at quarterback... I can envision him spiking a big touchdown rate thanks to all those different receiving weapons he has and just kind of finishing top six out of nowhere based on almost touchdown value alone. I I can envision that. Um, Where are you guys at on Big Ben? Yeah, I agree with your points about like that. The ecosystem for him is terrific. I mean, good offensive line, competent pass catchers at every position and, and, you know, wide receiver looks like an area of strength for that team. And and we know that Ben is good, right? I mean, he's, he's up, borderline Hall of Fame quarterback, maybe not even borderline. So uh, no doubts about that. My one concern is that that defense looks like a top three defense and and maybe they are not going to be in a lot of real pass heavy game scripts this year. I think that could sort of tamp down the value just a bit. You know, I feel really comfortable with his floor, but that might limit the ceiling to some degree. And uh, we're doing all this with the assumption that Ben is probably going to be in a little bit better physical condition than we saw him like on the sideline for some of those December games last year with the 
full beard and the uh, <laughs> Santa Claus physical build. Looks like Ben might have put on a few pounds while he was uh, nursing himself back to health after that injury. So hopefully, I believe, he'll... He, he, I believe he even admitted so that uh, he wasn't uh, shying away from the beers during quarantine and recovery. Which who can who can blame him honestly? But <laughs> yeah. uh, Pat, the health thing is really my one concern with Ben Roethlisberger. This offseason has been so strange in terms of you know just the world in general and our usual fantasy process. We've had a drivel of information on some of these guys as opposed to, you know, the typical fire hose of, uh, of injury recovery news. So I really want to wait to see how Ben looks, how his arm looks. Cause he's covering, he's coming back from uh, an elbow surgery, which is, you know, kind of important when you're playing quarterback. So if he still looks like he has the zip and, you know, I don't, I, I'm not too concerned about the, about the beer belly. Um, Cause Ben let's, let's be real. Ben's really never been the, the most fit quarterback. But I'm really more concerned about his arm and want to see how he can sling it. And if he's got that trademark zip and looks pretty good, then I'll feel a lot more confident picking him up in drafts. And I'm sure his ADP will start to rise. Now, if I had asked the dark horse question last year, I think a lot of people might have thrown out Baker Mayfield, you know, across the division there in the AFC North as an option to kind of smash his ADP. And I was wondering if either of you were going to tab him for this question, but neither of you did. I, I still kind of want to talk about him because I like his weapons. And I could see the Browns being worse on defense than we expect to the point where Kevin Stefanski doesn't really have the luxury of running as much as we assume that he wants to. And even if that Browns defense is solid, I can tell myself the story that the Browns are this year's version of the Titans from last year, who also had a good defense, who were super dangerous on the ground. Uh, The Browns could definitely do that with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt to the point where maybe Mayfield is just smashing people on play action passes game after game. Like, do you see that sort of outcome within the range of possibilities for Mayfield? I think there's certainly a way the chips could fall in 2020 where that becomes Mayfield's reality. But uh, at this point, I'm kind of waiting to see what uh, what the real Baker Mayfield is. If he's the, you know, the, the gunslinger we thought we were going to be getting after his rookie season, or if he's the guy who is really plagued by bouts of poor decision-making and inaccuracy that we saw last year. And some of that could be due to the Freddie Kitchens offense and other issues and his injuries. But given the fact that quarterback is so deep, if I'm outside, if I'm playing in something that's not a super flex league or a two quarterback league, I am not really going to be looking for Baker Mayfield this year. I'd rather just take the back seat and wait and see. There's a lot of other bounce back or dark horse candidates I'd rather take a swing at. Yeah. It's weird that I have not figured out what sort of stand to take on, on Mayfield. He's one of the guys I'm pretty agnostic about going into drafts. Like I would not rule out drafting him and yet I'm not exactly looking to draft him either. There was enough two years ago. We saw enough good things that I I don't think you can completely turn your back on him. You know, after the messy year with things going so poorly with Freddie kitchens and, and Todd Munkin, like the whole offense just seemed so out of sorts. Odell Beckham dealing with injury all year. So there's some really nice pieces in that offense if they can kind of get things back on the rails this year. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm open to the possibility of, of Mayfield having some sneaky value this year, especially since I, I think he played a pretty difficult schedule last year, if I recall. So maybe he gets to you know sail downwind a little bit more than he was last year as far as uh, level of opponents. You know, one thing I, I do worry about a little bit, I think statistically, he was pretty bad on play action passes last year, if I recall. So, um, you know, he's definitely got improved because with Nick Chubb, I mean, you've, you've got to cash in on play action situations. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I And that is one area where I think that he can improve. And I know I just made the case against that sort of thing for Josh Allen, but I think getting better on play action, especially when you have Stefanski, who does seem to be able to scheme up that sort of game plan fairly well, I, I could see that happening for Mayfield. And that's why I'm interested. I'm not drafting him ahead of all these other guys we've talked about necessarily, but you know, if I wait long enough at the quarterback position and he ends up being at the top of my rankings when I decide I want to take one, I'm, I'm not opposed to pulling the trigger because I can see the ceiling. Uh, but that's enough on quarterbacks. Let's talk about fantasy X factors. And this is kind of a nebulous term that I just made up for the sake of this podcast, but I'm, I'm talking about these like linchpins or keystone players or, or just general situations that are going to greatly influence fantasy outcomes in 2020. And I want to start with the big overarching X factor for the entire season and, and honestly the world, COVID-19. How many more games are players going to miss because of the virus? How is the testing going to go? Ultimately, we don't really know. So I think it might be a good idea to start by using other sports that are starting up sooner as a barometer to calibrate our expectations for the NFL. But I want to talk about this more in terms of how we set up our fantasy leagues and how we're changing our approach to drafting our fantasy teams. Let's start with this commissioner side of things. When it comes to changing the league setup to address coronavirus, there are a lot of different things we can do. And so I just want to kind of each of us throw out one idea for how to combat this. And I'll start. I think just the the easy answer, and most people will have thought about this or proposed this, is just to add either more IR spots or more bench spots. And I'm of the belief that you shouldn't add too many IR spots because it you know, leads to some shenanigans with roster construction and waivers. I'd rather just make the benches deeper. But what other suggestions would you guys have for combating what we're going? What's obviously going to be a very strange season? Uh, what do you think, Pat? So I'm, I'm, you know, a little concerned about IR spot. Like I, I'm not a big fan of like multiple massive amounts of IR spots, even for the unusual circumstances. I'd rather just see people add rounds to their draft. My home leagues tend to be, you know, of the the 20, 22 round variety anyway, where, uh, you know, more Scott Fishbowl like where we go deep with these guys. And, um, you know, I, I know some people like to have the uh, juicy waiver wires where you're always able to find good replacement value there. So that's going to vary uh, according to taste, I think, league to league. Um, you know, one thing. I mean, you should probably be thinking of ways to build in fail safes in case the season isn't completed. The teams that are strong, those fantasy managers are going to feel like they have the rug yanked out from under them if the the season goes off the rails and we don't get as far as the fantasy playoffs. So it would be nice to maybe build in this rule where you say, okay, we're going to designate. 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the the winnings to the highest point total the season has to go a minimum of eight or nine games but if it does and then the season is derailed after that and we don't get to play out the fantasy playoffs the top two point scores get x amount of money and the rest is refunded something like that um it would suck if you just had to scrub your season nine games in because, you know, there were huge outbreaks of, of COVID in the NFL and, uh, you know, entire teams weren't able to play in any week and the NFL realized they had to just abort the season. So that would be terrible. Build in something like that. So if you do get far enough along in the season, the teams that are doing well get at least some sort of small reward. 
I think those are all good suggestions so far. My other thought is that because people might have different weeks or a couple spells of weeks where their team is just ravaged by COVID, you know, if uh, like Ezekiel Elliott already had it, and if he had it and was out for a couple weeks and took a little time to recover, if he was your first round pick, that's definitely going to hurt your team. So perhaps for making the playoffs, structure it in different ways where instead of having every week count before week 12, say, or like weeks 1 through 12 all count and then week 13 starts the playoffs, have it be everybody takes their best 10 weeks. So you as the commissioner can look and be like, oh, week 2, this guy had a bunch of people hit by COVID. We're not going to count that one. And then you look at like who had the best 10-week record as opposed to 13 to, to create in a little buffer like that. And then as far as like results for the league, too, I think we talked about this on the uh, take one of the pod. But for things like dynasty leagues or keeper leagues, you know, it could just be the best practice to wait and see what the league itself does in the event that it shuts down early. Because that way, you know, we're, we're all playing these fake leagues, imagining they were our, our own real league. So if the real league shuts it down and gives the title to somebody or does a two two year season, like just do that with your league as well, because then uh, that should hopefully lead to the least amount of complaining. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And just in general, I think there is this idea that we're all in this together, right? So if the season does get shut down, hopefully you've built in some contingencies to address how that's going to work in your particular league. But for the most part, we're all playing with the same deck here. We all know what's at risk week to week and, and for the whole season. So you kind of just have to go with it and, and figure it out as we go, because there's still so much unknown with this stuff. And on that note, let's talk about how we're going to address the unknowns in our drafts, right? There's only one commissioner per league, but there are, you know, everybody still needs to draft a team. Uh, Not everyone's going to care exactly how these things are set up. Um, What sort of considerations are you guys having for addressing COVID with the way you build your roster? What do you say, Alex? I think you guys uh, have some, some bigger points to make here, but I just think this might be the year, especially if you do expand rosters, as we've suggested that, handcuffing uh, some of your top players could actually be a prudent strategy. Normally in, in regular leagues, it doesn't play out uh, and it's not the best value wise, but if you're you know, going to be in a pinch and there's a clear backup behind one of your top running backs or, you know, a number two or somebody else on the wide receiver spot, it's a little harder to handcuff wide receivers. But I think there's certainly a case to be made that in the, the present state of the world, this could be the year that to actually handcuff your top players. Pat. So in the more traditional leagues, uh, by which I mean not super flex leagues, just one quarterback leagues and not tight end premium leagues. So in, in leagues where you're starting just one quarterback and just one tight end this year, more than ever, I think I'm going to be inclined to look to just hammer running back and wide receiver in the early rounds and sort of wait on tight ends and quarterbacks, because I think there's always more replacement value to be found in the waiver wire at those onesie positions than there is at at running back and wide receiver and like I think we have to look at this as as what might be you know just the goriest injury year ever like and I know we wind up saying that almost every year like oh man the injuries are, are so bad this year like it seems like this is the worst year ever for injuries well this year is going to be the worst <laughs> year ever I mean these yeah. guys aren't get, they're not getting a, a full training camp they're probably not going to get any sort of preseason so they're going to be physical breakdowns even more so than usual and then you add covid cases on top of that like it is going to be gory and depth is going to be a must like i want to be four deep at least at running back five six deep at wide receiver like i just want to hammer those positions early on and i think in most years like 
I won't get a, a top tight end and a top quarterback. I kind of think that's roster death to try to get a top five guy at each of those positions. I might allow myself one at either of those positions, but this year, I don't know if I'm going to be shopping on the, the upper tiers at either quarterback or tight end in, in the more traditional leagues. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I agree that the early rounds, almost regardless of COVID, should be more about running back and more about wide receiver, just as a default strategy. Um, with that said, I know you talked about skimping a little bit more on quarterback and tight end because it's a little bit more replaceable. It's also replaceable in the draft itself. So even if you do spend those early rounds hammering running back, hammering wide receiver, I think because of the COVID situation, there might still be some value in having more depth at quarterback, maybe not necessarily tight end, but drafting, waiting to draft your QBs, but drafting two of them or drafting three of them or even four in a a two QB or super flex league. Now you don't always have the the luxury of waiting in two QB and super flex, but the idea is that it's going to be a lot more possible for your quarterbacks to end up you know, not playing in any given week because of the virus. And with that in mind, I do want to have some depth there. And if you can find that depth on the waiver wire, that's great. But you can also structure that in your the end of your draft. The only other idea I want to throw out there for how you might want to adjust your roster construction is to look for players who have good opening schedules, right? We want to stack up those points while we can because the player landscape could change very quickly. The season could get shut down early. And if either of those things happen, you're going to be really thankful if you got off to a hot start. So one of the ways you can do that is head over to 4 for 4. Check out the hot spots chart we have for adjusted fantasy points against or AFPA. A few teams who have easy opening schedules, Baltimore, Chicago, New England, and there are a handful others, handful of others that you can find on the chart. Uh, some teams with tough opening schedules, ones you might want to avoid, Las Vegas, and both the New York teams, the Jets and the Giants, along again with more teams in the chart. So if you're a 4 for 4 subscriber, I urge you to check that out and maybe build that into your analysis for the early season and how you want to draft. Um, but that's enough about the virus. Let's talk about some more fun X factors. And this could be players, this could be coaches, situations in general. And I think we should start with the incoming rookie running backs because let's be honest, they are all X factors that are worth covering. Figuring out these backfields where there are new additions can give you a big leg up if you get it right. So I'm just going to go through rapid fire in the order that the rookie running backs were drafted. And you guys can give me a quick take on which of the, the guys you prefer, the rookie or the incumbent. First up is the Kansas City Chiefs. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire versus Damian Williams. Alex, who you got? Uh, well, I love uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and his, his fit in the offense and his potential, considering the fact that he's going uh, about 60 places ahead of uh, Damian Williams, at least in that was the case in Scott Fishbowl on average. I'd much rather take Damian Williams for that price. It seems like the team is, is somewhat committed to Damian Williams still as well, having a role at least, if not being the out-and-out starter in air quotes, but... Uh, with that big of a difference, I'd rather I'd rather take the value in the veteran. I think I am with Alex on that. We're on the same wavelength. The gap in ADP probably should not be as as yawning as it is between those two. And I think part of that is that right after the draft, you know, Andy Reid was just so effusive in the praise of of Clyde Edwards-Alaire and just talking about him being you know as good at, as or better than Brian Westbrook, who you know for other old timers like me can remember what an effective fantasy player Westbrook was back in the day uh, for Andy Reid in Philadelphia. So 
I understand the enthusiasm about CEH and, uh, you know, he is an exciting player to have in that offense, just with everything he can do as both a runner and pass catcher. And obviously there's massive TD upside there, but, you know, hard to imagine them just completely kicking Damian Williams to the curb after the way he carried such a heavy weight for the chiefs down the stretch in each of the last two years. And, you know, we saw that it's, it's not going to be Damian Williams by himself. Like he's got to be part of a committee and it kind of was a committee last year, just Damian Williams sort of taking over down the stretch. But, you know, I, I don't think he is going to be just completely marginalized by Clyde Edwards Alaire. Yeah. I'm with both of you. CEH is the guy I want in a vacuum, but considering cost, I do like William a little bit more, uh, let's move on to Detroit, where they drafted DeAndre Swift, and he's going to come in and compete with Carrion Johnson. Pat, who do you like out of these two? Definitely Swift. I mean, he was my second running back in this rookie class pre-draft. You know, and I, I know that it's kind of the perception that Detroit was not an ideal landing spot, just sort of the stink of the Lions organization in general and just, you know, Carrion already being there. But I'm realizing that maybe I've I've got DeAndre Swift a little too low in my rankings right now, like in the mid twenties or, or maybe even late twenties. And uh, you know, this is a talented dude, and like I can't imagine him not making some sort of impact this year. I mean, maybe, maybe if the the split between these guys is you know fifty fifty, and and plus we even get a little more uh, Bo Scarborough or uh, you know some of these other dudes worked in like it could be just gross and and we don't want anyone from here but man I want to think that the talent is going to win out with Swift yeah that's where I'm at too I just think he's the better all-around talent has the better overall skill set I'm not a big carry on Johnson believer at this point I don't think that the Lions would draft Swift where they did if they thought that carry on Johnson was going to be their lead back Um, I'm a little overboard admittedly I have him inside my top 20 uh, Swift that is I took him very highly in the Scott Fishbowl. Uh, probably could have got him a, like a full two rounds later, uh, but I just didn't want to miss out. I think he's going to have a big year, and that, that's kind of one of my flags planted guys. Um, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I'm with you guys both on on Swift versus Johnson. I mean, uh, carry on Johnson, as much talent as he's showcased at times in the NFL, he's missed 14 of a possible 32 games, and I think the team going after Swift with the draft capital they did is a clear indication that they think they need somebody more reliable there, and Swift should be able to fill that role. So there's a big gap between these two in ADP as well, but Swift uh, thus far has been farther down the draft boards than where Clyde Edwards-Alaire is going. So I feel much more comfortable taking him over the uh, more value-based veteran. Who do you have between Jonathan Taylor and Marlon Mack in Indianapolis? Well, uh, we're both. you're going to get uh, quite a bit of bias here in this analysis from <laughs> Pat and me as uh, Wisconsin natives and Wisconsin Badger fans, but... Uh, I think I've got to go with with Taylor on this one. Uh, I mean, Mac is still there, and the team seems committed to him. Uh, you know, it's talked about giving a certain amount of respect, I think was the language they used to the starter. But, you know, having watched a lot of Jonathan Taylor, knowing he's capable of doing it all, I mean, he doesn't have the pass-catching numbers in college, but they just never really threw him the ball. So I think he's got the potential to be a three-down guy for him. And even if Mac keeps Taylor at bay early on, I just think Taylor's home run ability in that offense with a better quarterback now and other talent around him could really make him push Mac to the side rather quickly. Pat, you going to echo the the Badger love here? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got two University of Wisconsin guys here, so uh, you know the, the edge is going to go to Taylor. But I, I really think part of what's maybe tamping down the enthusiasm about Taylor is just what Frank Reich has said about this being more of a committee. And, and as Alex said, sort of showing some deference to the veteran. But if it's Frank Reich just basically trying to keep up morale for Marlon Mack, then maybe we're grossly underestimating what Taylor could do in this offense, because this is probably the best running back prospect we've seen since Saquon Barkley. You know, Taylor's got sub 4-4 speed. He's a bigger back, 220-some pounds. He's got the footwork of Barishnikov. He, he has terrific vision. Um, he asked to be more involved in the passing game last year, and, you know, after being used very little there, they did start throwing to him last year, and I think he had, like, four or five TD catches. So, like, I think he's just a much better player than Marlon Mack. I think we're going to see that. I don't know if there's three-down back potential. I mean, he wasn't even on the field at Wisconsin when it was third and eight. Like, they had another guy they used, and I think it's going to be Naheem Hines in that situation. But I don't think that matters much. There's going to be so much early down value behind maybe the best offensive line in the league, a team that I think is going to water run to protect their geriatric quarterback and set up play action. I just cannot envision Marlon Mack keeping Jonathan Taylor in a committee for more than a game or two tops, if that. Yeah, the problem with the coaches saying they want to give Marlon Mack respect is that they're not saying they want to give him carries or touches. And I'm with you guys. Give me Taylor. Uh, let's move on to the Rams next, where they drafted Cam Akers to compete with Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown. I think of these three, I like Akers in a vacuum, but I haven't been ending up with him much in my drafts because where Akers goes, I'm usually looking at other positions in that range of ADP. So for that reason, I, I do like both Henderson and Brown fine as later round dart throws, just because you know when you get later into the draft, it's kind of just a more of a what do I need? And if it's running back, there's a good chance that maybe Henderson or Brown is the best available for me, whereas Akers is just in a range where I'm not going to get him, even though I do think he's probably going to lead this backfield in fantasy points. Pat, who's your preference here? I'm sort of with you, Greg, when it, it just seems like, you know, I'm intrigued by Akers, but he always goes too early for uh, my taste. Like, I'm just not willing to draft him where he generally goes. I might be willing to take a shot at Henderson or Brown. You know, Brown, it would obviously have to be one of these 20 or 22 round drafts, I think. Um you know, and Henderson, obviously, just kind of a washout season for him last year. Uh, I don't know if that means he's just completely out of favor with the coaching staff. I mean, now they're talking about possibly using John Kelly and sort of a four-man backfield. So that's kind of scary and gross. But, you know, Henderson was a pretty good prospect coming in. The prospect profile was good. So I don't want to just totally give up on him just yet. I mean, if he really slides in a draft, maybe I'd take a chance. But uh, yeah, for the most part, I'm I'm not real drawn to any of these three. Yeah, I'm I'm with you guys here. I actually has I had to laugh because uh, last night at some point I took Cam Akers in one of our four for four staff best ball drafts somewhere in the mid to late rounds, and uh, I felt okay about it. But then uh, this morning I saw. Sean McVay saying he wants to echo what San Francisco <laughs> did with their backfield and, and ride the hot hand. And, you know, just kind of had the sad want want music playing in my ears for the next hour or so. But if somebody does emerge, I'll be interested in it. Like, I don't Cam Akers is, is intriguing. He wasn't one of my favorite prospects, but it looked like, you know, where they drafted him 
Henderson's coming off an injury. Malcolm Brown was kind of just more of a touchdown vulture. I was intrigued by what Akers could do if he got passing volume like they used to give to Todd Gurley. But for the most part, I don't see myself ever investing terribly heavily in this backfield. What about the Ravens? J.K. Dobbins, Mark Ingram, will you invest in one of them? Uh, I certainly will. I would like to invest in in both of them, potentially, uh, depending on the league. Not at the same time, I'm meaning, but I'm not afraid of either of them. If I had to pick one or the other, I'm going to go with Mark Ingram here. I think he's got secure workload. He's the veteran. He's been in the team. You know, Dobbins is not going to have as much time to get acclimated as he might in a normal offseason. It's not as big of a deal at running back, but I feel like Dobbins is going to eat more into the Gus Edwards, Justice Hill workload than taking out of Mark Ingram's workload. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I like Ingram, and it, it might be incorrect, but I, I think the continuity here matters a little bit more to me in this situation than some of the other situations with rookie running backs. Like, mostly I just like Ingram as a player. I like him more than guys like Kerryon Johnson and Marlon Mack. I think he's a better running back, and the fact that he's been in this system for a year, that he performed well in it last year, I, I like Ingram, and I think that he's a, a, a reasonable value where he's going. He's one of those kind of mid-tier running backs, like third, fourth, fifth-round guys that I'm usually willing to draft where normally I'm, I'm pretty scared off of running back in that range just because the track record is so spotty. Maybe I've got blinders on, though. What do you think, Pat? Yeah, back in late February, pre-COVID, I think I had the gap pretty narrow between these two. But now it's really hard to envision Dobbins passing Ingram here. The COVID situation just seems to play up Ingram's value, I think. Uh, things work so well with him. Uh, just he paired so well with Lamar in that offense last year, and he was such a good fit for what the Ravens wanted to do with their running game. And it's going to be really hard for Dobbins to do that without a full training camp, without a preseason. I think we might have to wait until 2021 for the, the Dobbins coronation. Now, I don't think this situation really counts as an X factor, but I'm going to give A.J. Dillon some due because, again, this is a Wisconsin-centric podcast today. Um, A.J. Dillon versus Aaron Jones or Jamal Williams, maybe just a two-word answer for you here. Uh, we all want Aaron Jones, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, and uh, you know, I'll spare you guys the event about what a, a bad pick Dillon was in the second round. I know four for throwers, John Paulson, a fellow Packer fan, and I exchanged many dismayed DMs on day two of the draft after the Dillon pick. Um, yes, I'm, I'm still an Aaron Jones guy, though. Uh, let's get to Tampa Bay next. Keyshawn Vaughn, Ronald Jones. I don't have a strong take here on this one. Um, what about you, Pat? Yeah, I've, I've sort of gone back and forth, and I've actually drafted both of these guys in best balls this offseason. Now I'm kind of leaning a little bit towards Vaughn. We've seen Bruce Arians express his desire to get a more passing game-friendly running back in there. And I think protection might be a bigger issue this year, I mean, that's a glaring weakness in Ronald Jones' game, and I think that's going to be even more important this year with Tom Brady at his age and, you know, with his lack of mobility. And pass protection generally is something that's kind of overplayed in fantasy and, and something that doesn't really factor in that often. But with Brady, I think it might actually be more of a factor than it would in uh, a different situation with a different quarterback. And Vaughn's a, a versatile guy i think at, at minimum you're going to get value out of him as a passing down contributor a third and eight guy and uh you know he does have a chance i think to cut into jones work on early downs you know i'm actually in the ronald jones camp here uh, largely just based on how well he played down the stretch last season if you go back and watch some of those games you know the raw stats might not be there but 
Jones just looked like a different player than the other backs they continued to give the ball to, Peyton Barber, at all. Uh, and it seemed like Jones was starting to maybe curry a little favor with his play on the field. And, you know, the pass protection is certainly an issue, but something that he could work on this offseason. And if he gets that in line, Tom Brady's also going to want the guy in that's going to be moving the sticks and keeping his offense on the field. And I think Jones has a, has a pretty good chance to be that. Yeah, I've been drafting both of them. I really don't feel strongly about one or the other. And if anything, I'm kind of just avoiding the situation altogether. I know we've talked a lot about what Tom Brady wants. And I think what Tom Brady wants is to prove that he can win a Super Bowl without Bill Belichick. So it wouldn't surprise me if between all the receivers there, between Bruce Arians, a coach, and Tom Brady under center, that they do throw a lot, even though the expectation is that they're not going to throw as much as they did last year. I think this might just be a situation where neither Vaughn nor Jones hit the volume they need to deliver on where you have to draft them. And so I'm more inclined to just avoid the situation altogether. Now, one situation that I'm less likely to avoid, uh, the last running back rookie X factor I want to bring up here is Zach Moss versus Devin Singletary. We know the Bills want to be run heavy, and I have interest in both of these guys for that reason. I, I still think I prefer Singletary in a vacuum, but at cost, Moss is intriguing for the touchdown upside, for the pass c- catching upside. I'm a little worried that Josh Allen as a rusher could make both of these guys busts uh, if he steals too much goal line work and too much rushing production. But uh, where are you at on Moss versus Singletary, Alex? I'm pretty much avoiding this backfield right now just because the split seems so unclear. And we also know that Josh Allen is a big factor in that running game. He's going to chew up a lot of yards, a lot of opportunities, and certainly a lot of touchdowns near the goal line. Unless we get a clearer picture from this, I can't imagine that I'm going to be drafting a lot of either of these guys. But I guess... If push comes to shove, maybe I would go with Singletary just because he did look so good at times in that offense. I know, Pat, uh, you might have the stat on hand, but you mentioned in, in take one that he had an unsustainable number of long runs that contributed to his fantasy production. But I just think he was still looking like the type of running back that could be the guy on a team, whether or not he continues to get that opportunity after they sunk such a high pick into Moss. That remains to be seen, and it's kind of why I'm scared off of uh, this backfield. Yeah, you said it, Alex. I mean, he, he did have, and I don't have the uh, actual numbers in front of me, but I know Singleton had this this super high percentage of long runs last year, probably unsustainable, but seeing is believing with the guy. I mean, he was good last year. Like, he has got some, some wiggle to his game, and I, you know, maybe we see the same sort of deployment of these two backs as we saw last year with Singletary and Gore, with Moss sort of in this Gore role, and presumably doing it a little better as a younger back with more juice. But I, I don't know if I'm going to be interested in Moss, even even if he is at an affordable price. But I think we have seen the ADP on him start to creep up a little in yeah. recent weeks. I, I think there's been a little bit more chatter among the analyst class with Moss. And he's not really priced to buy for me anymore. So if, if Singletary falls far enough, I'm, I'm interested, but I kind of agree with Alex that neither of these guys are really buys for me right now. All right, that's enough on the running backs. So I've, I've kept you guys on the rails long enough with these X-Factors. Let's go off the rails. If I just ask you for who your big X-Factor is for the 2020 season, Pat, what, what would you say? So one guy who kind of comes to mind for me is Drew Locke. He flashed a little bit towards the end of last season, and... I think it's mainly because he has got so many intriguing guys he is expected to carry this year. I mean, we're we're talking about Cortland Sutton as like a, you know, high to mid-range wide receiver two 
Jerry Judy, either people's number one, number two, at worst, number three wide receiver in this year's class. Uh, Noah Fant, who had some uh, intriguing moments over the second half of last season, maybe even K.J. Hamler. So there are a lot of guys whose fantasy value is sort of going to depend on how Locke fares in his second year. And, um, you know, I'm just still not quite sure what to make of Locke. Like, I've got a lot of friends who happen to go to the University of Missouri, you know, so I get more exposure to Missouri football than the average football fan does. And like Locke early in his college career, I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy is an NFL quarterback, no question. And then he didn't really, I don't know, the, the growth trajectory at Missouri was not always what you would like. And there's some definite decision-making issues there at times. There's a little Josh Allen in his game sometimes. So I just don't know how it's going to go with Locke. I know a lot of people are bumping him up and, and making him a target in two QB leagues just because of the pass-catching talent he has at his disposal. And I'm always a little wary of doing that. You know, I, I know I wound up with uh, Eli Manning late career <laughs> Eli Manning in a couple of years because uh, I was so excited about him having Beckham and Ingram and, and Shepard and you know all these good pass catchers yeah that was a mistake and uh, I, I don't want to do the same thing with Locke but you know I, I just worry that Locke could potentially crash the value of a guy like Cortland Sutton so he is definitely going to be a key guy who's got some other guys depending on him so when push comes to shove, are you drafting those weapons there, or are you avoiding them because Drew Locke is the quarterback? Like, have you taken Cortland Sutton, Noah Fant, Jerry Judy? Uh, what, what's your stance on those weapons there that he's throwing to? Kind of avoiding right now. Like, I mean, I have no doubt about Sutton's ability as a player. Like, I think he's terrific. Great contested ball guy. He's fast. I mean, he's like just the physical build. Everything about him I like a lot, but I'm kind of avoiding him this year just because I don't everyone's more confident in that passing game working than I am, I think. Uh, I'm with you on that. How about you, Alex? Are you buying any of the Denver weapons? I'm certainly intrigued by them, and uh, I think Locke showed us some signs down the stretch, so it's not a team I'm going to be avoiding because of that question mark, though. So the backfield is is a little more worrisome, but uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not avoiding that offense at all because of Locke, no. Who's your X Factor for 2020? You know, I uh, I had a different answer on, on take one of the podcast, but I, I liked where Pat's head was at in terms of a quarterback, and it got me thinking of another big one, and that's Philip Rivers. We kind of talked mm. about him a little bit in the Jonathan Taylor section, but Rivers is is part of the reason why that Chargers team uh, ended up with the sixth overall pick or whatever this year in the draft, and he landed in Indianapolis, and a lot of people are just kind of penciling them in to be a favorite in the AFC South, but... Rivers is up there. He's had a, a preference, or not a preference, but he's been had been prone to throwing a lot of uh, interceptions in recent years. And if Rivers is struggling or his arm isn't holding up as much as we'd hope it would, uh, that offense is going to suffer a lot of fantasy woes in terms of T.Y. Hilton and Jonathan Taylor, Marlon Mack, even you know Jack Doyle or uh, Michael Pittman Jr. A lot of a lot of decent sleepers or potential you know big fantasy seasons on that team could come crashing down if Rivers uh, isn't able to get back to his old ways there. Do you see any of those players there being immune to a bad Philip Rivers season, for lack of a better word? I don't know. Maybe that's partly why T.Y. Hilton, and based on his injuries, isn't going as highly as he would in previous years if we were all of a sudden pairing him with uh, what you know presumably would be an elite quarterback. But it's hard to see any of them being immune from that, uh, you know, that 
could could really end up sinking the whole ship there, especially since it's his, his first time in this offense playing with all these guys. Yeah, I don't know. I see it as not being too big of a deal for someone like Jack Doyle. You know what I mean? A, a lower A dot player. I don't think it's it's going to be tough for Rivers to hit him on enough of those targets, but maybe there are just too many weapons there for it to matter anyway. And if Rivers isn't good and he's spreading the ball around, even Doyle would be a disappointment. I'm not sure. Um, what do you think, Pat? I like Alex's call on that because it is interesting and it could kind of swing either way with Rivers. And I mean, what if he is sort of the old Philip Rivers and can keep it going and, and sort of be ageless the way Drew Brees and Brady have, have been, or, or at least were in their upper 30s. I mean, we like Rivers is younger than those guys. Like, what if he has the typical Philip Rivers 4,200-yard, 30-touchdown season? I mean, the components in this passing game are pretty affordable right now. You know, T.Y. Hilton, Paris Campbell, who's a little bit forgotten in a lot of drafts. Um, you know, Michael Pittman, who might be able to make a little bit of noise right out of the gates. So if he does have a, a, I don't know, more of a classic Phil Rivers season, those guys might be bargains. No, I agree with that. And I have talked about that on the show before, that if Rivers can bounce back a little bit, someone there is going to be a value and probably multiple guys for sure. Um, I, and I also, like we talked about with Jonathan Taylor earlier, I like him too. So it, it's hard for me to not be excited about that offense just because of all the weapons there. But you're right. If, if Rivers doesn't deliver on what we expect, then that could be a problem for one or, or all of those those weapons there. Uh, my X factor is going to be Preston Williams, the receiver on the Miami Dolphins. Is he going to be healthy or not? Uh, this is a big question because not only does it pertain to his personal value, but I think it really affects the other players there in Miami. Like if Williams can't get on the field, that big target share for Devontae Parker is going to be back again. I think it gives a more locked in role for Mike Gusecki. And it even gives a chance for some late round value with guys like Albert Wilson or Alan Hearns. And I have to give a plug to John Paulson's awesome 99 stats article from this week at 444.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. He had this really awesome nugget. I mean, he has a bunch of them in there, but pertaining specifically to this Dolphins situation, Mike Gusecki only saw 3.9 targets per game in the eight games that Williams was active, and Gusecki was only targeted on 12% of Ryan Fitzpatrick's pass attempts in that span. Then, after Williams got hurt, Gusecki's target share grew to 17.7%. So, if Williams can stay on track, if he can be ready for week one, I think that that puts a hindrance on the value of Parker and definitely on Gusecki. There are a ton of other great tidbits in John's article too. Uh, again, I'll link to it in the show notes. Check it out. But Pat, where are you at on these Dolphins pass catchers? Boy, like the, the late career breakout for Devonte Parker is so interesting. And I'm inclined to believe it just from what, I mean, it, he passed the eye test, you know, yeah, and same. I think part of it is that maybe he had always had these sort of nagging injuries earlier in his career. And maybe he's just not a guy who plays well when he's struggling with his health. Like it, it was never enough. Oftentimes it was not enough uh, to keep him out of action, but he would be playing through something and usually not well. And then we just saw a totally different guy. And uh, I also do think that Fitzpatrick's uh, YOLO style of quarterbacking seemed to mesh well with Parker last year. So I'm certainly interested in him at his very low end wide receiver two, upper end wide receiver three cost. I, I kind of like Preston Williams too. I mean, he looked fantastic until the knee injury, although I'm not going to be overdrafting a guy 
coming off an ACL injury in a, a COVID year, I think. Preston might be a guy, even though I've got him in at least one dynasty league, I, I might let other people take and redraft. It is an interesting situation, though, how if he does come back full go, what that is going to do to the other guys. And it, it might have sort of a detrimental effect. I mean, other than that, uh, you know, I think this offense could be, if it's healthy, if this offense, as you guys mentioned, with all that talent around there and, and a guy like Preston Williams, who's kind of getting forgotten, uh, his absence really helped lift Devontae Parker. He was play- They were both playing well together, but Parker was able to get a bigger jump when Preston Williams was knocked out. But this could be a, a fun offense to mine a lot of value from if, if everything breaks right for them. Yeah, I agree. I'm fascinated to see how it plays out. And we're running a little long. I wish we could keep going with these X factors. I had like at least three other situations I was interested to bring up, but uh, I think we've gone a little bit over time here. I'm going to shut it down. Pat, thank you very much for joining the podcast today and yesterday. Uh, appreciate the time that you took to do this. Um, why don't you let folks know what you're working on, where they can find you, and all that good stuff. Well, thanks, Greg. Uh, great to talk to you. Great to talk to Alex. Really enjoyed being on with you guys. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. Please check out my Fitz on Fantasy podcast, which is weekly, usually out on Tuesdays. And uh, you can always find my rankings and articles at thefootballgirl.com. Alex, time for your uh, plugs and sign off here. Well, uh, I've got a couple articles that'll be dropping soon, including wide receiver breakouts and the wide receiver draft strategy over on Four for Four. So keep an eye out on those. You can also follow me on Twitter at Alex Gelhar, where I'll be sure to share all the articles and hopefully more uh, fantasy football nuggets and stats as we start gearing up for fingers crossed uh, the 2020 season. Yeah, fingers crossed indeed. Uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Once again, be sure to get over to 4 for 4 and get subscribed before early bird pricing expires on July 31st. Uh, if you do it by then, you'll also get a $35 voucher to use at the FFPC. Good for a best ball draft, and those best balls are a ton of fun. It's really what drives a lot of our analysis here on the podcast and, and just in general because you have to go a little bit deeper. Otherwise, we'll be back again next week. Uh, so thanks again for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. Adios. Adios.